0: All right, everybody, we're going to kick off period three, our first topic for period three. We're going to hit the causes of the American Revolution. We're going to look at why the relationship between Britain and her American colonies crumbled faster than a Nature Valley granola bar. So let's get into this. Um, You heard me use the word Britain just a second ago, and maybe if you think back to the previous topics that we looked at in the colonial era, you notice that I was probably using the term England more frequently. Uh, So what happens, You know, prior to the American Revolution, uh, we're looking at a map here and England, when I say that word England, what I'm actually referring to was a nation that existed. It was just part of the British Isles. Uh, So you see it in the map labeled here. And when England combined with the nation of Wales, combined with the nation of Scotland, uh, those three nations combined, they created something called Great Britain. So when we refer to the British, we're actually referring to not just the English, but the Welsh and the Scottish. Too. When we hear United Kingdom, we have to lump the Northern, Northern Ireland into that realm also. So that's the difference between England and Britain and United Kingdom. A lot of people use the terms England and Britain interchangeably, but there is a slight difference between them. If we're going to uh, be nitpicky when we're in this period, when we're in period three, we should probably be uh, using the term Britain or the British uh, to refer to the, the collective government and parliament that represented this area. All right. I, uh, we're picking up uh, right after I had you do a reading about the myths of the American Revolution by Carol Birkin. And I wanted to remind you of the a big theme of that reading, which she pointed out that, that most Americans have this simplistic understanding of the American Revolution. They think, that, they think that like all of the British colonies rose in unison to rebel against the tyrannical king. Uh, we can't forget that not all colonies actually did separate, um, that it was mainly about taxes. We're going we're gonna to complicate that a little bit today, uh, that the soldiers in Washington endured a long war and fought single-handedly to defeat the British. We're going to complicate that in the next topic. And then they happily created a democracy, and we'll complicate that in the third topic. So for today, what are some key things that I want you to remember, some big ideas going into this, is that... The colonists were not really a unified group here uh, in terms of the march towards independence. They were very divided on this issue. There were times where it, it felt like things were moving quickly during independence, but then things would die back down. As you're also gonna find out taxes, the economic notion of taxes were not as burdensome as you previously maybe had assumed. Uh, and in that the war itself, I don't think you can fully understand if you think that the, just the economic nature of taxes were the cause of the American Revolution. The French, we can't forget about the French. Uh, We owe our independence to the French. They're going to help tremendously, and I'll spend more time talking about them in topic two. And then when we get to topic three, we'll spend a lot of time talking about how democracy isn't necessarily the term that a lot of founding fathers would have used to describe the government that they were hoping to design uh, at the end of the American Revolution. All right. So the first key question in your reading guide deals with the Great Awakening, which was this religious movement that kicked off 1730s, 1740s in the United States. What were its causes? What were its consequences? Well, on the cause side of things, we want to remember that a lot of the established churches in the colonies, and the big one being the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which was the official, when I say established, I mean that's the official church of a colony. And I'm not using the word state yet. Remember, we don't have states until after independence. So these are colonies that have an official church, meaning they collect taxes from everybody, and those taxes finance the salaries of the ministers of these churches, and also pay for the construction and upkeep of these churches. So even if you weren't a member of these church, you might have to kick over a certain share of your income to these churches. But there was limitations to them. Like the Anglicans, the Church of England, you had to be, uh, you had to get some training back in the mother country back in England in order to be an officially ordained minister in the church. So it just wasn't that easy. So in Virginia, a colony of thousands of people, they only had like 20, 26 ordained Anglican ministers. North Carolina had zero. So there was just some limitations. There was people in the rural back country area that were just not like feeling like they were part of this religious establishment. You also had the Puritans up in New England. Remember they're different than the Anglicans. They wanna purify the Church of England, actually. So they're, they're both Protestant, they're not Catholic. But the Puritans uh, are also practicing their own forms of exclusion. And remember, they've kicked people out of their colony before because they've disagreed with religious authorities. So they kicked Roger Williams out, Anne Hutchinson out. Okay, another cause is that what's happening around this time is there's a growing number of revivals, very evangelical uh, outdoor experiences this is like the Woodstock of the 1730s. So they're intercolonial. There's people attending these from all all the other colonies. They're cross-denominational. So it's not just it's not just Anglicans attending this. It's Puritans and Anglicans and Baptists and Presbyterians. They're transatlantic. So the some of the ministers coming over are from, they're not just from the American colonies, they're from the mother country, like England. George Whitfield is one of them. We have to make sure we name him. George Whitfield. it looks like it's pronounced Whitefield, but it, you actually say it, Whitfield. was the face of this movement. George Whitfield kicked this thing into high gear. So he was a minister from England, came over to the colonies. He toured the whole, all the colonies, um, between Maine and Georgia. So this is like the first shared experience that all of the colonists had had. Delivered something like 18,000 sermons over the span of a few months. Um, had a lot of his sermons printed. Ben Franklin made a fortune printing this guy's sermons. And I think by the time he left, something like one out of every uh, 11 American colonists had a copy of, of this guy's sermon. So he he was the first national celebrity of what would become the United States, George Whitfield. And if you're looking at him, you're like, that guy looks a little funny looking. He's got cross eyes. Um, but that was actually part of his appeal. The, the colonists, the religious colonists actually thought it was his looks, the fact that his looks contrasted with his big booming voice, that it was a sure sign that he had been handpicked by God to deliver his messages. He delivered a sermon in Boston. Boston's a town of 16,000 people. He delivered a sermon in Boston to 20,000 people without a microphone. That's how booming his voice was. Okay, so this man was a was a massive had massive appeal and he went all over he went into every little nook and cranny of the colonies and I you know anybody who could travel anybody could hear this guy pretty much did. Uh and the printing press helped push this thing along too. Uh handbills and newspapers would advertise um, his arrival ahead of time. They would print his sermons afterwards. They would spread his appeal. But the, not just for George Whitfield, Whitfield, but for all these revivals. So everywhere he goes, he's often not preaching in a church. As I just said, he preached to 20,000 people in Boston. So he's preaching outside. And a lot of other ministers are going to copy his style. He's very emotional. And a lot of like, if you think back to the first unit, you read a sermon from Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which he was basically guilt-tripping all of his people in his congregation, telling them they're all going to go to hell or they're going to wake up in hell. God's dangling them over the pits of hell like you he would dangle a spider over a fire. The idea of this, like, getting people scared, that was a big part of the Great Awakening. Okay, this first, this, there's going to be a later Great Awakening. There's going to be a second Great Awakening. But the first Great Awakening, there's a common belief in predestination, that it was determined from your birth whether you were going to go to heaven or go to hell. And so getting people to feel despair actually was a goal. It was believed that you really wouldn't figure out if you're going to go to heaven or hell unless you experience despair first. And then if if God, if you experienced some form of grace uh, after that, that maybe that was a sign that you were a chosen one. So you... There was an appeal to having these very angry hellfire and brimstone emotional sermons as part of these revival experiences. It sounds very depressing to our ears today, but it was actually appealing back then. Consequence, let's flip the coin here. On the effect side of things, these emotional sermons became very appealing. The United States became much more evangelical. The South, which I just, I just mentioned earlier, did not have much of a religious presence in it, began to. And when we think of the South today, we often think of it as a Bible Belt. It started to develop that that culture thanks to the First Great Awakening here. Um, We started to see people rebel against established churches. The Baptists and the Presbyterians are different than the Anglicans. They don't require intense training for their ministers to be ordained. So any uneducated person can become a Baptist minister. You can work a job on the side. You don't have to do your services in a church. You can do them in a barn but they're not the official established church of Virginia. And even if you're a Baptist, you're still gonna pay taxes that support the Anglican church. And people don't like that. And so you start to see some rebelling against authority and you start to see Anglicans picking on Baptists and Baptists uh, you know, arguing with Anglicans. So <clears throat> that's gonna be, be a trend that goes forward. And if you think about long, long-term causes of the American Revolution, this is maybe one of those roots where we start to see the colonists get used to rebelling against established authority. Another example of that is we see prior to this moment in time, the, the Puritans had all of their ministers train themselves at Harvard. And what you start, started to see within the Puritan realms, and, and if you're looking at the chart, the Puritans called themselves Congregationalists. Um, You started to see a breakdown in schisms within that church between old lights and new lights. Old lights were the people that liked the old way of doing things. New lights wanted this more emotional evangelical service. And you started to see the rise of some new light colleges to train ministers in this new style. And that's where we got Princeton. That's where we got Brown. I mentioned earlier, Baptists and Presbyterians—they're an important consequence of this movement. We see the 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 rise of Baptist and Presbyterian congregations. You you should see that in the chart there on the top left of slide six. And then religion overall became more democratized. And another another important long term root here of the American Revolution, the um, these evangelical revivals were very democratic. There was rich people and poor people sitting shoulder to shoulder. There was men and women experiencing things together. Uh there there was women who could uh speak at these revivals. And it wasn't just a a white male up front you know preaching all the time. So men and women, white and black, free and slave, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, all sitting shoulder to shoulder experiencing this thing together. Very democratized. It was a shared experience. Some of the, one of the first things that really tied all of the colonies together. Uh, and it led to greater independence and diversity of thought and a willingness to challenge authority. So an important kind of long-term cause here of the American Revolution. Now, another important long-term cause is the French and Indian War, which was a big victory for the British and the British colonies. Um, but let's address the causes real quick. The map, I think you want to maybe hit pause and, and spend some time looking at that map. You see a before and after. Before 1754, that's before the French and Indian War really got going, and then seventeen sixty three the map there that's further to the right shows you like what things looked like after the war was settled. Um, what was happening around this time is there was an increasing amount of conflict between Britain and France over some key strategic geographies, and a lot of it was like in the borderlands area between between the French colonies and the British colonies in the new world, so like they both wanted access to Hudson Bay, where some of the best fur. Was be you know where you could access some of the thickest fur, the coldest climate, the thickest fur, the best for the fur trade. Nova Scotia had some of the best fishing waters. They were fighting over that. The Saint Saint Lawrence River had access to Montreal and Quebec, key fur trading posts. Uh, the Great Lakes. Um, there was you know people wanting to move further into the interior and, and settle around there. Same with the Ohio River Valley. So both empires wanted to occupy those strategic geographic regions. And there started we started to see an increase in conflict there. George Washington's pictures on the lower left. You see him dressed up in a British officer's uniform. He's sometimes blamed for for uh, igniting the spark of this war. Uh, he was part of a a group that accidentally killed a French peace officer that was going to to create some a peace settlement, and then it ended up kicking the war off near uh, Pittsburgh. What today would be Pittsburgh. So. Those are some quick some quick causes. The consequence on the consequence side, uh, we have France losing. If you look at the map, you notice just the disappearance of blue. So the French lose all of their North American colonies. They hold on to Haiti, or what at the time was called Saint Domingue. Uh, it's their sugar island down in the Caribbean. Today we know it as Haiti. They hold on to that now. That looks bad on the map, but actually, for the French, their money maker was the sugar island, and they were losing a ton of money on the fur trade. So they were; it was becoming too costly for them to maintain all the forts and and maintain all the the good relate to maintain good relations with Native Americans required a lot of gift giving, and that was a costly endeavor for them. Uh, so they they actually give that up. Um, in the long run, that that turns out okay for them. British pride increases, so if you're a colonist, you you. You helped out with this it feels good to win all this you're looking at all the land that was just won, and you're like hey that's that's a a new investment i could make to move out into that region or buy land in that region but at the same time so did british opposition the british for the first time started to do some cracking down on some of the navigation acts and the trade restrictions and they found out the colonists who had kind of developed a habit over the years of illegally trading with the french their enemy in this war and so you started to see some some um, tension build there between Britain and the, the British colonies. Native Americans lose their key French ally uh, in North America. And the British don't immediately pick up the gift-giving cycle that the French had developed. So they initially neglect the Native Americans after they have the, they've lost their French ally, and that leads to an uprising. So that's called Pontiac's Rebellion. You see the map on this uh, this slide, slide nine, shows you all of the various sites of Pontiac's Rebellion. You're looking mainly around what today would be Michigan and Indiana and Ohio and western Pennsylvania. Um, but there's about 2,000 Americans that are affected, either killed or wounded or kidnapped during this during this massive rebellion. Um, and that's going to lead to I'm jumping around on the consequences here, but the British are going to respond to this by passing something called the Proclamation of 1763 which tells the colonists they cannot move west. You see it on the map there, the proclamation line. They cannot move west of the Appalachian Mountains. The British are like, we can't continue to send over more troops to protect you and defend you and prevent these two sides from fighting. So that's uh, from a colonial point of view, we'll talk about why that was frustrating. Uh, From a Native American point of view, that sounds like great news. The colonists are not going to come over here. This is going to be our nation. Uh, The British are going to support us, develop that. So that was uh, somewhat of a, a victory. For the Native American side, there, uh, the British war debt, you know they were in massive amount of debt. they were devoting like sixty percent of their annual budget was being used to pay for interest on this debt that they had accumulated to win this war. so sometimes victory comes at a cost, and this was a pretty pretty terrible cost for the british and so they started to argue about who should pick up the cost of this war. Prior to the French and Indian War, the British had maybe only sent over a couple hundred troops into the colonies to protect and defend them. Now they had, they left behind after this war, they left 10,000 troops there to protect all of the, the vast geography that they had gained. And they were thinking, you know, who should help pay for that? Well, those 10,000 troops are protecting the colonists. How about the colonists chip in for a little bit of their own defense? You know, why should the people back in Britain be paying for the defense of the colonists. How come the colonists can't chip in for that? So that kicked off a debate. Um, And with that, we see the seeds of the American Revolution planted. The British debt triggers the debates over taxes, triggers the debate over who can implement these taxes, uh, who has a right to assert control, who has a right to define who can trade with who. Um, So this is all boiling uh, at the end of the, the French and Indian War. The British end their policy of salutary neglect. They begin Uh, enforcing these navigation acts that they've had on the books for decades, but they've just really never enforced. They were too cheap to enforce them previously. They had never really financed the colonies. They had let the colonies kind of do their own thing and finance and tax themselves, Uh, but the colonists also got used to smuggling. They got used to smuggling with the French and with the Dutch, with the Spanish, and now there was crackdowns and people were getting arrested. John Hancock was getting arrested. Um, And the Stamp Act is going to come out of this, too, as a hope of of financing some of this debt. So there's a a good map here uh, of showing the before and after the French and Indian War, what the French essentially lost here. So most of the Ohio, uh, Great Lakes, Mississippi River Valley, St. Lawrence River Valley, um, and then what today would be Quebec was lost there. Possible short answer question related to that. I want to remind you of one tip when you're doing short answer questions. Read. questions carefully so sometimes they ask for causes sometimes they ask for effects and in a mix of the two so don't mix them up so if you look at this possible short answer question a says briefly explain how one specific historical event or development contributed to the seven years war which is another name for the French and Indian war is that a cause or is that an effect it's asking for a cause so A development that contributed to, that's another way of saying a cause. If you look at B and C, they say explain a specific effect of the Seven Years' War. That's that does not, you do not want to talk about a cause if it's asking for an effect. So look for your consequences column of your notes there. All right. So remember to read carefully. Now let's look at some turning points uh, that cause this relationship to fall apart faster than a nature valley granola bar. We're gonna look at six things so let's start with the proclamation of 1763 i mentioned this earlier colonists were very upset by this this is a result of pontiac's rebellion and the british are saying we already got 10,000 troops over there we cannot afford to send any more over uh and so what we're going to do instead is just tell the colonists you cannot move beyond the appalachian mountains and the colonists were thinking like what are you talking about we just helped you win the french and indian war we just helped you win all of this land and now you're telling us that we can't move out into it. And there's some pretty big names. George Washington, probably the biggest, but Ben Franklin too, had sunk a ton of money into uh, investing in land that would be west of this line. So like Kentucky, Ohio, um, they had purchased thousands of acres of land out there, hoping that one day when people moved out into it, they would be able to sell that land. That's called speculation. So they had speculated in western land. And the proclamation of 1763 effectively just said, your investment is worth zippo it's worth nothing and so this is one of the big reasons that's going to compel people like george washington to join who had been he had served with the british in the french and indian war and now this is when he's going to really start to get upset about british policies here the stamp act comes along in 1765 so remember the french and indian proclamation 1763 this is two years later the stamp act And the British are looking at this financing of like these 10,000 troops over in the colonies and saying, why can't the colonists chip in just a little? The people back in Britain are paying 26 times the amount of taxes as the people over in the colonies. We can't ask them to chip in anymore. The colonists have to step up and help pay for this. And they weren't even asking the colonists to pay for the whole 100% cost of these 10,000 troops. They were asking them to pay for one third of the cost of these 10,000 troops that were over there defending them. Did the colonists like that? No. The colonists were saying, we didn't get a say in this. Parliament voted for the Stamp Act, and we don't have any representation in Parliament. To which Parliament said, you do, though. You you kind of do. You're virtually represented. Like, we, we kind of understand what your interests are, and we'll take them into account when we make these decisions. That kicked off this whole debate over... Uh, Who represents whom? And you you see this phrase come out of this, no taxation without representation. So the colonists are saying, our problem with this act is not necessarily the financial economic aspect of it. We're happy to pay taxes. The colonists have paid taxes for years. They've always taxed themselves though. This is the issue. So they've always passed their own taxes and happily paid their own taxes. The problem with this one is that this was a tax passed by parliament. And it was taxing things that the colonists made themselves. There was paper products that the colonists had made themselves. It was an internal tax. So this stamp had to be affixed to all paper documents, newspapers and legal documents. So you just angered everybody who has a voice. You just angered lawyers. You just angered newspaper publishers. And these people start to talk about liberties and say, we didn't get a, we didn't get a say in this. Where's our representation in parliament? No taxation without representation. Side note. That is the official phrase that's on the Washington DC license plate today. Don't forget that the uh nearly million residents of Washington DC have no senators and no members in the US House of Representatives to represent them. Uh meanwhile, The state of South Dakota and Wyoming, which have smaller populations than uh, Washington, D.C., have two senators each, and each have their own representative. So there's some weird irony that's still going on with that. Uh, A second consequence, second reason that the Stamp Act is a turning point, it challenged Parliament. Uh, You know, it's to say, what power do you have to pull this thing on us? We've always done this ourselves. Where are you getting the right to come in and do this? To which Parliament says, all right, you want to know, they, they passed something called the Declaratory Act, which says, we declare that we have the right to pass taxes on you. Okay, um, uh, the other the next thing it did is it created some actual colonial coordination. So these various colonies that prior to this did not have a whole lot of shared experiences, started to organize boycotts together. They formed a temporary Stamp Act Congress together. Ben Franklin had tried to organize a Congress during the French and Indian War, It was going to be called the Albany Congress, but uh, the colonists were just not interested in joining that. But this time around, they are. The Stamp Act is a threat to their freedom, their liberties, uh, this new language that's creeping out of the Enlightenment. And we see that. We see the the rise of the Sons of Liberty, this kind of secret underground organization that's rising in in the various colonies, but mainly in in Boston. And we also see some pretty violent reactions to the Stamp Act. Tax collectors are getting tarred and feathered. See some imagery down here of that uh The Governor of Massachusetts thomas Hutchinson he's royally appointed. he was picked by the King, has his house not burned down it's it's a brick house it has his house what's called pulled down, so that brick by brick that's how angry they were about the stand back. They disassembled his house. they almost killed the guy, but he managed to get away now, what did the British do to this? How did they respond? Did they send over waves of new troops? Did they round up everybody who had tarred and feathered a tax collector? Did they close down the printing presses that had printed um, protest pamphlets? Did they, did they round up the members of the Stamp Act Congress and put everybody on trial for treason and then execute them? No, they did not. The Spanish and the French might have done something like that, but the British didn't. The British listened to the colonists and repealed the Stamp Act. So what I want to emphasize here is that the colonists actually, this is one of the reasons why they kind of like being British is that the British allow their colonists to have more freedoms than a lot of the other European empires do? You can protest in the British Empire. Spanish and the French, maybe it's a, it's a riskier thing to do in those empires. Um, but the British listen. So, this is, you don't hear talk of independence here yet, but you're hearing talk of like, we want some freedoms, we want some liberties, we want some representation in Parliament. Yes, we're a colony but we feel like our lives are just as important as anybody who lives back in Britain. And you should listen to what we have to say. So that's the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act is the thing that really gets the ball rolling. Now, the British don't entirely give in to the colonists. They do repeal the Stamp Act, but they replace it with something called the Townsend Acts, which uh, was their hope that saying, okay, I realize the Stamp Act, we were going to tax you on things that you made, but... um, what if we tax you on things that you don't make? So you, your problem with the Stamp Act was that it was mostly internal goods. We're gonna tax you on external goods. We're gonna have you pay some taxes on things manufactured back in Britain that you're importing. So that was the hope with the Townsend Acts. Again, the hope was to finance the 10,000 troops that were over in the colonies protecting these colonists. How did it go over? It was not uh, not very effective. So. The colonists managed to uh, successfully boycott these products or smuggle these products from other places. We're talking about things like uh, carriages and paint and and glass and um, and wallpaper, things that were imported from Britain, manufactured goods from Britain that only generated like 295 pounds of revenue for the British. So they also repealed this. It just didn't work the way they were hoping. Um, And again, the colonists were telling Parliament, guess what? you know what, you, you guys have absolutely no authority to enforce taxes and any laws on us here in the colonies. We pass our own laws, we pass our own taxes, we finance our own system here. We'll report to the king, but we're not going to report to you, the parliament. We were issued our charters from the king, we were not issued our charters from parliament, therefore parliament has no authority over the colonies. So this is getting, things are starting to be pushed in a little bit more of a radical direction. And because of that radical nature of this language, the British decide to send over new troops, more troops. Uh, they send 4,000 troops to Boston. This is a town, as you see it on the map here, 16,000 people lived in Boston around this town. This is a way smaller town than, than Mankato is today, 4,000 troops. So uh, you know, you just increase the size of the town dramatically, and where are these soldiers going to stay? Probably they're going to take over some places in town that previously had more colonists had lived. So that's going to create some anger and animosity. Where are they going to work? Well, they're going to, they're going to put in some time working for the British army, but at the same time, they're going to maybe look to pick up jobs for extra wages. That means they're going to start competing for labor along the wharfs, along the docks, along the rope making and the shipbuilding regions. And that's going to create tension. Um, so they were not, and also they 're not over there defending the troops they 're there to pacify and subdue the troops, and that 's going to create some anger and animosity amongst, especially amongst the people of Boston. So what happens well, a couple of years later there 's a snowball fight uh, and and it turns ugly and um, there's shots that are fired on these colonists uh, and, and that creates what at the moment we call the Boston massacre and It is immortalized in this imagery you see in this slide, Paul Revere. Uh, drew this um, broadside image here, this pamphlet, and it became propaganda to to kind of sh- um, shame the British for their actions in the Boston Massacre. So uh, there was a trial for the British soldiers, um, and a lot of colonists just got super angry about this moment in time and the fact that these these uh, it felt like these these British soldiers were getting off easy. And the colonists were were searching for justice at this moment in time. The Tea Act uh, is going to come along also in the 1770s. We're in the 1770s now. And what's happening is that one of the biggest companies in Britain, the British East India Company, is teetering on bankruptcy and the parliament decides to do a bailout for them. Now, it's also somewhat ironic that a lot of the members of parliament were shareholders in this company and they didn't want to see their wealth disappear. So, what they decided to do is that the British East India Company had millions of pounds of like extra unsold tea let 's just unload it on the colonies well that's a threat to people like John Hancock and a lot of other smugglers in Boston who were bringing in tea and selling it and British merchants who were or excuse me and, and colonial merchants were selling smuggled tea. But now, with this bailout, this British East India tea is going to be much cheaper than any of this other smuggled tea. And, and so all of this money is gonna go to this one company that is, oh, what do you know? Its, it's uh, shareholders are all in the parliament. Um, so that felt pretty unfair to a lot of colonists, even though they were the smugglers too. So uh, the Sons of Liberty organized this Boston Tea Party, this famous event in December of 1773, where they dumped 342 chests of tea into the harbor. And that leads us to perhaps the most important turning point next to the Stamp Act, I'd probably say this is, the Stamp Act ranks pretty high and so does this, the, what are sometimes called the intolerable, sometimes called the coercive acts. And this was punishment. This was a direct response for the Boston Tea Party. So the Boston Tea Party, 1773, these coercive acts are 1774. It shuts down the the uh, Boston Harbor and they tell the citizens of Boston, you're not going to have your harbor reopen until you pay for the damages that you caused by dumping all of that tea into the harbor. Um, they revoked the charter of Massachusetts, the governing document. They they forbid uh, freedom of assembly. And so town hall meetings, little towns, Concord, Massachusetts, Lexington, Massachusetts, 10, 20 miles outside of the town of Boston, previously didn't get that worked up about a lot of British policies. But suddenly what you start to see in a lot of journals and little town hall meeting notes from these places is that you see the, the rise of like hatred of the British and hatred of parliament. Uh, come out of these little tiny towns outside of Boston. The Quebec Act was part of this, which handed over a huge chunk of land um, that was going to be given over to the the province of Quebec, which the French had set up, and remember the British win it in the French and Indian War, Uh, and Quebec had been settled by a bunch of Catholics, French Catholics, which the Puritans, remember how much the Puritans of New England hate Catholics. That does not that uh not going to make them very happy. It's also not going to make any landowners happy who are hoping to move out there and speculate in that area, if that boundary is going to be given over to Quebec. So there was a lot of colonies that were hoping to expand and, and broaden their territory, like Pennsylvania was hoping that Pennsylvania would would gradually grow into the west. Same with Virginia, um, that there wouldn't there wouldn't be all these separate colonies. there would just be these thirteen colonies that would that would grow and expand. But the Quebec Act cut off that possibility. So how did the colonists deal with this? Well, they formed the Continental Congress. So they, they reconvene. Remember, they did that briefly with the Stamp Act. They, they bring this back, uh, this Continental Congress back, and they develop a political document. They develop a list of grievances. Now, remember, we're not declaring independence yet. This is 1774. We're not going to de- declare independence until 1776. So they're still bargaining. There's still hope for a compromise uh, with this list of grievances. Central to the grievance is political issues. It's not so much about money. It's not about taxes. It's about who has a right to pass laws, who has a right to impose their authority and a power in these colonies. Is it parliament? Is it the local assemblies? Is it the king? Okay, so the local assemblies want more power, want more autonomy, and they feel like the parliament is is robbing that from them. Um, they're calling on local communities to start stockpiling weapons and training militias and training local militias and beginning to defend themselves. They formed something called the Association, which calls on communities to begin to organize serious, serious boycotts. Uh, and that's so that's the work of the Continental Congress. So you can see things are getting closer here. The the granola bar is crumbling. In um, the next topic, we're going to get to independence. But in in what will happen with this, what you see some imagery of on the, on the left, is with the stockpiling of these weapons, the, the citizens of Boston, remember they have 4,000 British troops there. So anybody with a gun in Boston is, is encouraged to take their weaponry and hide it outside of town. A lot of, that, a lot of those weapons get hid in Concord, Massachusetts. It's about 20 miles west of Boston. The British hear about this and the British send their troops out uh, in 1775 to try to capture the stockpile. But they're met by some local militias. First, they're, let by, they're met by a local militia in Lexington, which is about halfway between Boston and Concord. Uh, shots are fired there. Those are, those are kind of the opening, sometimes called the shot heard around the world, uh, the opening shots of the American Revolution. And then when they get to Concord, they're also shot at. And then on their march back, just wave after wave of, of co- uh, colonists comes out to shoot, take shots at the British Army. The British Army runs out of bullets. And so, lots and lots of them end up dying on their march back to boston um, they It would probably strategically be called a defeat for the British Army. They went out to try to capture something, failed to really do it, had to march back and lick their wounds, and lost a lot of men along the way and So this is a huge swelling boost of pride for the Americans at this moment of time, so this' sometimes called the first battle of the American Revolution the Battle of Lexington and Concord. But again, this is 1775. We're not declaring independence yet. We're shooting weapons at the British and still asking for some type of bargain, some type of compromise deal. Basically, we're willing to stay in the empire, but give us more rights, give us more autonomy, give us more power. Um, Stop having parliament impose its will on us. Possible short answer question related to what we just went over is to pick. There were six things we just went through, but pick three and talk about how they increase tensions, explain how they increase tensions between the colonists and Great Britain in this time window, 1763 to 1776. So I I don't think, you know, you wanna make sure you talk about the Stamp Act there and probably the coercive acts for sure. But this is a a sample short answer question, and I wanna use this moment to just teach you a little bit about how to do a better job with your short answer questions. If you read these A, B, and C, um, you could hit pause real quick and try to guess like which one of these three earned the point. Um, but I'm gonna tell you that overall, this short answer question only earned one out of three points. So you can pause and try to guess which one earned the point. Was it A, was it B, was it C? And I'll tell you the answer. So the answer is B is the only one that earned a point. Um, what you have to do to earn the point for this is you have to identify a factor. You gotta name something But then you also, don't forget, you have to explain. This is why it's really impossible to earn a point in only one sentence. So you notice B is the best one. B uh, named something, it identified something. They said the Stamp Act, um, and it said because uh, they were being taxed with having no representation, the colonists desired representation, and that fueled revolutionary ideas. So they explained it. Uh, It doesn't take much, but it just takes a little bit more than what some of you have been doing on your submissions. Take a look at C. Notice what C does differently. It said, Britain tried to stop colonists from self-organizing into a unified government This helped lead to the American Revolution because they wanted the ability to do so. What's the problem with C? It's too vague. It doesn't really name anything. It doesn't identify a specific thing. So look back at your notes. We have six boxes. We identified six specific things and we talked about how they increase tensions. How they, that's the key to this. How do they increase tensions? How do they cause the colonists in Britain to dislike each other more? So you want to, if you get that short answer answer question, you want to make sure you do that. The next short answer question is kind of looking at things from a slightly different point of view. What If we're going to have an American revolution, we're going to have to have some unity between the colonies. There's got to have to be stuff that brings the colonies together. And that's what these next three things do. So the Sons of Liberty is an important group. It's kind of an underground group. They're going to organize communication networks between the colonies. They're going to smuggle goods between the colonists, uh, mostly smuggling like information. They're going to organize resistance groups. They're going to intimidate loyalists. So they're an important underground group. You see Sam Adams on the left there. He's probably the biggest name from this. Um, and so these are the people who are the pushing the revolution from the earliest stages and the pushing for independence. Uh, these are often some of the first voices for independence, uh, men from the Sons of Liberty. The role that women played is is vital. Um, The boycott was an incredibly effective boycott. Take a look at this chart for just a second. What you're seeing, British imports is this green line, and I want you to notice how it is skyrocketing here in the 1770s, and then it just does this dramatic drop. Just a swift, huge decline in British imports there in the 1770s. And that had a lot to do with the work of women. So every time we talk about a boycott in the colonies, you need to think of women doing the work of that boycott. Because if we're going to refuse to buy British goods, what are we going to replace them with? And that's where women come in. Women are the ones who are going to make the things that previously were purchased from the British. And women are going to be the ones to like, Keep an eye on the community and make sure nobody is buying British manufactured goods and begin to intimidate those people, begin to ostracize those people, begin to rat those people out for ruining the boycott, the effectiveness of the boycott. So this is one of the most important things women are doing. On the bottom left of this, I have a screenshot of a Google image search of what comes up when you search American Revolution and women. And what comes up is a bunch of pictures of Betsy Ross sewing a flag and images of this fictional woman called Molly Pitcher. In our mind, when we think of women in the American Revolution, we typically think of women fighting and taking the place of their husbands in battle and sewing flags. That's an incredibly simplistic and mostly inaccurate interpretation of what women were doing during the revolution. They did not fight in battles in large numbers. But what what they did was still just as important and, in fact, probably more important. So the boycott really... Um, turn the screws of this revolution and put the pressure on the British uh, and force them to listen to the colonists. Okay? They raised money uh, at a time where the, the colonies had very little money to pay for the troops that are going to be fighting in George Washington's army. Women are often doing a lot of the work to pick up the slack and make sure that these guys get paid. And they're also supplying them with the supplies that they need, the clothing that they need. Um, so it has more to do than just Betsy Ross sewing a flag. Right? There's thousands of women who are making clothing for the troops that are raising money for the troops that are enforcing boycotts. So we cannot forget about the contributions of just average, ordinary, everyday women and the role that they played in this revolution and helping bring unity uh, in this long-term movement that's gonna take years to accomplish this revolution. Couldn't have been done without them. And then finally, the Continental Congress who are uh, at the forefront of the of the political arguments here. So they're developing a list of grievances Um, At first, they're basing those grievances on the rights of Englishmen, not yet on the rights of all human beings and not natural born rights of every human being, but just the rights of Englishmen. Those are often their arguments at first. Uh, They're not talking about independence just yet. So remember, that's going to come later. Um, They're calling on their communities to develop militias and stockpile weapons. I mentioned this earlier after the Coercive Acts is when this is formed. They form uh, something called the Association, um, calling on communities to, to organize boycotts. They call for the raising after Lexington conquered that first little battle, they call for the raising of an actual professional army and navy. So full-time soldiers, not these little local militias, um, but full-time soldiers under the command of George Washington. He's uh, made the general of this army. So it's going to be a southern guy, George Washington, in a mix of colonists from all over the place. Uh, So it's truly going to be like a continental, as the name implies, a continental army. Um, Now the Navy is, uh, that's more of a wishful thinking there. Um, The French are mainly going to be the Navy for the Americans during this time. But what's unique, what's important about the Continental Congress, it took on authority above and beyond any one colony. The colonies were starting to be willing to surrender some power and authority to maybe another governing body. So this is like they were in the infancy period here of what's going to eventually maybe become a U.S. government. So that's the, the Continental Congress. And it's different than the Stamp Act Congress. They just get together to complain about one specific thing. But the Continental Congress, the idea about it is is like it's going to meet maybe indefinitely. It's going to meet until things are resolved here. Um, And so they're hoping for at first, just remember this, they're hoping for compromise first. When compromise finally feels impossible, then we're going to start to see the switch to independence. And we'll get to that in our next topic. So that's where we'll end things here for today. Don't forget to take a look at the study guide and slide, uh, scroll down to the bottom of that to take a look at some of the possible short answer questions. We're in topic one here, so pay careful attention to anything that has a one next to it. And that pretty much covers it for this topic. So we will see you for topic two.